Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, let's get into some turf wars, shall we? Yes, we should. Specifically, who is owning what territory inside organisations around environmental and social governance? It's ESG, brand purpose, content, social media, reputation management, and yes, that thing called risk. About a month ago, MI3 was involved in a roundtable of 15 or so blue chip CMOs with Accenture Interactive and former Telstra CEO David Thody, now chair of Zero and the CSIRO, among many of his gigs. The roundtable was exploring marketing's role in sustainability and the climate crisis. It was under Chatham House rules, so I can't spill the beans on who said this, but one prominent CMO lamented that it was their corporate affairs and communications peers that were holding back the company in question from making more impact and creating more public action and awareness around sustainability. They were too risk averse, the CMO said with some frustration. On the flip side, I've heard for 20 years how many in corporate affairs think the marketing team are too light and don't think through the broader impact for their business in government policy and the investment community, particularly around sustainability and ESG. It's, of course, a raging theme for marketing, corporate affairs and communications reputation management. So today we have an eclectic mix of guests to unpack where all this is headed. What is the future of corporate affairs and communications and how it tangles with marketing? Many will know Andrew Billy Baxter, former CEO at Publicis Group and WPP's Ogilvy. He is now chair of Australian Pork, adjunct professor of marketing at Sydney University, chair of comms and marketing talent hub Comtract, and he's a non-executive director at the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and the National Basketball League. I'm not sure whether he's got such a workload. He could do more. Joining Billy is Anna Whitlam, founder of Asia Pacific Executive Search and Talent Firm, AW People, uh, also a non-executive director at Comtract, and Vanessa Lyle, executive director at Comtract and a co-founder of Herd MSL. So welcome to you all. To Billy first, um, welcome. And as we outlined in the intro, Billy, there's not always a beautiful alignment between brand and marketing professionals and the corporate public and regulatory affairs teams. Marketing is a bit too fast and flashy sometimes for corporate affairs and corporate affairs people obsess about avoiding excess risk. Now, those are the two arguments from both sides. What's your take sitting in the middle? Is that any of that reasonable, Billy? And welcome. Hey, yeah, good day. Thanks for having us all on. Uh, I think, you know, certainly sitting around the board table, you do discuss two very clear uh, objectives. One's normally around growth and one's normally about risk. And if I simplify, you know, obviously the marketers have got a great propensity to enable growth. And on the other side, you know, you've, you do have um, sometimes the corporate affairs team and particularly potentially also some of the legal and accounting um, folk around the board who are, you know, are very keen on managing risk, even around, you know, sounding, sounding confusing around managing risk in regards growth. So I think there are there are these two two dilemmas of, you know, businesses do have to, manage their top line, but they also have to manage, uh, you know, the, the business, uh, you know, with, within um, the, the risk appetite that the boards set. And, and that's the sort of the, the language the boards will talk about. But, so there is a dilemma. But I think on any board, you need those diverse people around the board table. You've got to make sure you have both so you can have that good conversation and make good decisions. 
So Anna, I might just ask you, what do you make of this tension? Does it exist? And particularly around, I guess, you know, when we're talking about sustainability, the climate crisis, ESG and, and so forth, um, what do you make of this, this, this tension between marketing and communications? Is it valid? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, I thank you also for having us today, Paul. Um, it definitely is valid, but I think it's a healthy validity, um, one might say. I think a lot of it's got to do with relevance and a lot of it's got to do with what's actually happening in the world as to what's more important now and what actually drives product sales and relevance for organisations. So if we look at um, marketing, you know, marketing was um, the dominant player, was relevant in a day before technology, before digital channels, when above the line was really the main form of uh, driving product sales. Um, in a world that's actually driven by new technologies and engaging at different levels, some of that above the line related activity is no longer needed in the same way that it was. We also know that consumers buy from organisations that they trust and that corporate affairs essentially drives reputation. There's definitely a tension. The tension comes down to relevance of functions. You know, marketing was, I think, once the most significant function to drive sales. Um, in today's world, consumer behaviour is more uh, is more influenced by trust. Consumers buy from organisations they trust. You know, building trust is a direct outcome of corporate affairs. So we're starting to see the rise of corporate affairs because of its relevance. And I'll just give you a quick example. I mean, there's no amount of marketing that's going to drive further iron ore sales in China. You know, that's a relationship that we've all seen fall down that will only be repaired through trust and a rebuilding of a relationship. How does this, you know, why is this increased so dramatically? If we look at what consumers are demanding and what the generations um, below us are actually demanding, it's a much greater sense of purpose and a much greater sense of so social purpose. So that's where we're really looking into the ESG side of things, you know, growing global, there's clearly a glowing global concern around climate change and how companies manage um, their environmental and their social impacts. This is very much part of the reputation agenda because again, it actually feeds into trust. So we, we really have moved away from directly trying to influence customers to buy products to actually have customers believe in products and customers buy from organisations that they feel comfortable with, that they can trust and that are purpose oriented, which is where ESG is starting to play a much stronger, much stronger line. You make a really interesting point, though, uh, about sort of iron ore into China, for instance, and, and, and you have a view that is it similar between consumer goods and industrial and B2B? Is there differences here in the corporate affairs function, the marketing function, and how it crosses over? You know, that's such a good question. I, I think that the, you know, the area that we have to look at there just quickly before I directly answer that is, is measurement. Mm. Now, marketing essentially has always been the owner of data and measurement, and so so you know, marketing still remains as relevant to actually feed into the organisation to better understand, um, you know, how they're actually, how, how they're performing with their customers. But the way that you influence customers in different sectors is actually quite different. And from an industrial perspective, you know, a lot of it is actually about trust and relationships and longer term, um, how you can find a mutually beneficial uh, relationship. Whereas if we look at consumer goods, we're still trying to um, align, but we're doing that through influences more and more or above the line advertising. 
And that's because the sophistication of consumers is growing dramatically. So there's still a, an element of authenticity there that's required by consumer goods companies. But I guess what I was saying is that marketing traditionally is still very important in a consumer world. It's less important in a B2B world, but it's done differently. So I, I'm not saying that either are more important, they're just done differently. And I think that the turf war comes around the relevance of the function and one's ability to make an impact and, and manage reputation and drive sales, to Billy's earlier point. How would you uh, encapsulate the, the view from corporate affairs, which is clearly where you're very strong in the region, but how would you articulate how corporate affairs people see marketing in the, in the, the context we're talking? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, you, it depends on what side of the fence that you sit on, mm. and Billy and I often debate this. I mean, I, I think that corporate affairs have always seen it as, and I mean, I'm a marketer by trade, so I'm talking from one side to the other, um, have always seen it as a partnership because you can't have one without the other. They just have different mindsets. So I would disagree with what you're uh, at the round table, you know, you mentioned earlier on with David Thody that one of the marketers said that the corporate affairs leaders are too risk adverse. I'm wondering if they're getting the corporate affairs leaders confused with the, with legal, because I, do, I don't think corporate affairs leaders are too risk adverse. I think that they want to work in parallel. The corporate affairs function has a lot to learn from marketers. And I think what marketers has done, marketing has done is enabled corporate affairs to better understand the customer. And we know that, you know, customer is getting much more complex. And, the, and, and I mean, I know that we're going to talk about this as we, as we go on, but it really comes down to then owning the message. You know, I remember when I was in marketing, I mean, I started my career at Foster's many, many years ago. And lucky me, it was the day when we got given a, a slab of beer every week. And, you know, I was a single girl living with a group of guys. And so that was party house on a Friday night. It was fantastic. Crikey. We had to try the product, of course. <laughs> yes. You know, what we did was we, we worked quite separately because our goal was to sell as much product as we possibly could. Right. And then our, our corporate affairs colleagues were obviously trying to make sure that we did that in a responsible manner. Hmm. Now, and we never saw them as the, uh, you know, um, as the enemy. But what we did need to, what we often didn't realise is that the message out of both of those two areas needed to be the same. Mm. Um, in those days, it didn't matter so much. Today, it absolutely matters because consistency of message goes to trusting the organisation. Consumers are so much more, um, are so much smarter now in the sense that mm. being authentic is everything. You can't say a product does something if in actual fact it doesn't. Because, you know, digital channels will obviously catch out immediately. You know, the disgruntled customers get seen around the world in two seconds. Whereas when more traditional channels were in line, those sorts of messages could actually be um, deleted or removed before they actually met any audience. So, you know, a lot of it does come down to this sort of rapid digital and technical advances changing of um, consumer expectations, societal expectations. Um, and, and a lot of it, again, is about generations that have different have, have different needs to what we did have. Now, we've talked sort of uh, two-dimensionally in some ways around sort of corporate affairs and marketing, but we were talking last week as well, which was there's another element to this, is, which is also government policy, regulatory and policy development. So and that, that's another, another sort of tension point where there is kind of coming in on, particularly around the ESG stuff. So you had a, some interesting thoughts on, on, on those different uh, functions and structures 
and a little bit different to even the US. I want to go there and then I want to get Billy's view because he's got something, you know, at, 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 on the border pork, Australian pork. There's some, some interesting uh, discussions to have there. So just go through that one, Anna. I mean, government and public policy, I think, have become a significant driver um, of market access for organisations, particularly when you look at um, how the how the world is changing. Essentially, um, it is. I, I believe that you know, if you if you get your government affairs and your public policy function right, it becomes an enablement to your company accessing spaces that you may never have accessed before. So an understanding for where a country is trying to take itself and then an alignment of your organisation to that through your government relations strategy or your public affairs strategy can be hugely advantageous. And, and we're starting to see more and more of that. You know, I think when uh, Matt Common, for argument's sake, came in as CEO at CBA, um, Andrew Hall was the head of corporate affairs at that point in time. They worked ex extremely well with the Australian government to really look at some of the areas that the Australian government needed to open up more fairly, particularly in relation to some of the outcomes um, um, following the financial uh, following the Royal Commission. Um, and one of the things that they did in partnership was the initial development of the COVID app, which, you know, was, was masterful when you think about it, you know, being able to sort of really help and partner achieve an outcome for the greater good, which is essentially feeding into what today's consumer wants to see more of rather than selling products for profit's sake. So, you know, I see that really, I, I put that a lot of that down to Andrew's um, incredible experience with both sides of government and his strategic ability to align what an organisation is trying to achieve alongside what a government's trying to achieve. And we see this happening more and more in Asia. It's seen much in a much more sophisticated light where government relations leads in Asia will in fact have this as a part of, you know, that their contribution is seen on the P&L because their ability to open new markets through their understanding of what the country of responsibility is doing is, is quite extraordinary. Penny Burt, who has um, just finished up at, as uh, CEO at AsiaLink in Australia and was ex-Visa um, and, and McKinsey in Asia, um, has done a terrific job um, of demonstrating the value of the discipline and how you can actually measure that um, on the balance sheet and on the P&L, which is essentially what you know Billy was referring to earlier. Well, you, you just mentioned a balance sheet and P&L. So Billy, Chair of Australian Pork, at board level, you've got all these different influences coming in at you to have their input on what should be done. How do you reconcile that? What do you see at, at, at a board level of, of those different streams, marketing, corporate affairs, public public affairs, government policy, regulatory stuff? Um, what's your view on it from a board level? We have some very interesting discussions because well, first and foremost, any organisation has to focus on the customer, right? So, you know, you've got to understand what the norms are and they change over time. You know, what, what customer expectations are um, do change, whether that's to do with the environment, you know, climate change, animal welfare, all of these things. So I think that's the first thing you need to, you know, boards need to make sure they've got their, their heads around. Um, and from that point of view, at the same time um, as understanding that and hopefully making sure you're staying ahead of that curve um, to, to ensure that, you know, the stories, I think some of this is also storytelling. We, you know, we've got a great story in Australian pork around, you know, re reduction in, uh, in in water usage on farms over the last decade. Same with carbon, how we're capturing uh, a lot of the methane um, and 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 powering farms. So there's some really good stories that people don't hear. They they often hear the negative side of of some of these uh, some of these things. So staying ahead of that, but then also keeping 
I think from a policy point of view, we've got to, you know, work with government, have regular conversations with them about where the industry is and why, for example, Australia might be one of the, the better practices, you know, or have some of the better practices around the world. Um, you know, certainly from a research point of view, there's been quite a bit of change in recent times. You know, the government does co-fund a lot of research in the um, rural industry body space and, and the RDCs, as they call them. So you do have all of these points. Of views. And then, of course, you've got, you know, our producers and our farmers who, who are doing, doing an incredible job, you know, particularly through COVID in, in continuing to feed our nation who, you know, they also, at the end of the day, want the win-win of being able to have profitable, successful, sustainable businesses over the long term. So you're right, we do have all of these things coming together um, and you've got to have some really smart people around the table to, to bring all those points of view together and have that discussion. And how does it look for you um, at, at board when you've got those three different, let's just say those three different functions, there's a lot more that you have to deal with, but do you see a shift? Do you see them coming together? Are they? Do they need to align? Are they aligning? Is it still sort of territory there where that it's a protected turf that this is our stuff and this is our area and we will own it? Do, do you see that shifting at all, Billy? You know, uh, I think we're lucky at, at our organisation, the team does work quite closely together, you know, our, our, our policy and, and and government relations people working closely with our communications team and our marketing team. They are three separate teams within Pork. Uh, all, all report through to Margot, the CEO. But you know, you need those working together closely. I think the better organisations, again, have that have that conversation, listen to all sides, and then make those calls. Yeah. But you know, at the end of the day, you you, you want to be keeping as many people happy as possible, and if that means government, consumers, producers, you need you need to be able to do that. So, Vanessa, you've heard the conversation so far. What's your take on this, particularly around the appetite for risk around the two functions? Thanks. That's a really great question. I mean, I come from the communications discipline, and I think getting back to basics, communication is a relationship between an organisation and its stakeholders. And um, the tension is between marketing and communications is necessary and really critical part of any organisational dynamic. But when you think about building a relationship between an organisation and its stakeholders, communicators in corporate affairs are thinking long term. Relationships take a long time to build. They take a lot of dynamics, a lot of investment, a lot of two-way um, relationships. And that's where the tension is because market by, marketing by its nature needs to be incredibly close to the customer customer and incredibly responsive to what's going on. So the reason that we saw a particular tension last year was obviously when COVID hit, when there was a downturn um, in the economy, when companies needed to reorganise very quickly to meet the needs of their customers, marketing went into action as it should to try and quickly understand and react and respond to its market and what's needed. But communicators step into that as well because they're looking at the long-term relationships and understand that we need to respond and not react. So that's why at times of crisis, you do start to see this kind of evolution that's going on at the moment. Um, Anna's made a really important um, point about trust, but I guess what we know as communicators is trust takes decade to build and it can go in an instant. And so what you'll find at the moment, um, I don't think communicators or corporate affairs are risk averse necessarily, but they are looking at those long-term relationships and just considering what the what if. If we react like that now, that might meet a short-term need or a, a short-term market need. But we also know that if we lose a trust now, that can take us a long time to, to get back. So that's always a really great conversation to have. And there's no right or wrong in that. And we saw that last year. But what we did see is companies that did well, firstly, really 
really understood their customers and adapted to meet their needs and to stay relevant to them in a very tumultuous situation. But also um, Anna and I spend a lot of time, Anna, in Asia Pacific, but um, here in Australia, um, speaking to heads of corporate communication and um, the various functions on that. And they were spending a lot of time looking closely at the situation in terms of what did that mean for the relationships with government, um, with the media, with other stakeholders, with industry bodies, with regulators. And that is our remit as well, where marketers are looking at the relationship with the market, we're looking at the relationship with everybody else. And um, our corporate affairs leaders, um, we're delighted to say last year, just really stepped in as they needed to, to the challenges that they were facing. And I think the companies that did the best were able um, both to address the needs of the market, but also to consider the long-term relationship with those stakeholders. I do want to get to both of you, Anna and Vanessa, on who owns what, particularly let's go to environmental social governance, ESG. Who has owned it? Where is it going? Where should it be owned? Who should own it? So I think we've seen that change. I think it has been, parts of it have been with uh, legal and parts of it in the past have been with the CFO. What we're seeing, and and we have been inundated with requests uh, in this space, um, is that it's more and more coming um, and being part of the corporate affairs function and discipline, um, albeit specialised as part of that. Um, and, and the reason for that is, you know, again, playing into reputation being, you know, the organisation's primary asset and therefore the importance of ensuring that an organisation is managing itself across each of those different aspects. It's become incredibly important to um, boards and and board directors, um, particularly around risk. You know, we've seen a growth in activist investors. Typically, corporate affairs would manage work to try and manage those relationships. And I think too, you'll see that there's been a lot of changes in, in investor relations for this reason as well. So it's not just about reporting on the numbers, it's actually about reporting on the narrative, the story, that actually helps manage the message to consumers and to investors. And I think that, again, with ESG, I mean, we the the other reason why it's actually come in more, more steadily, I think, into corporate affairs is that customer um, is no longer just the external customer. It's our employees, it's our shareholders, it's, it's, it's our whole world. So it's very difficult to differentiate now um, and therefore, being seen as a good organisation or an organisation that is um, balanced in its views across uh, the social, environmental and financial uh, means that that message needs to be consistent as it's actually developed. So just to be clear on that though, Anna, um, when you talk about corporate affairs, seeing that switch to corporate or that shift to corporate affairs in terms of owning the ESG mandate, is that strategy as opposed to ex- execution then? Yeah, that's a, such a good question and I should have actually um, started the answer with that. I mean, ESG is owned by the organisation, essentially, is owned by everybody from, um, and I think opera, you know, bringing that through to the organisation so it can be uh, part of everyone's roles on a day-to-day basis is what every major corporate is actually struggling with right now. What sits often in corporate affairs is the strategy piece to it, but it's not done you know, in a silo. I mean, this is done in close alignment with legal, in close alignment with finance and the CFO and the CEO and the board and the strategy. I mean, it's inherent in what the organisation values as important. 
You know, um, I think we've gone from the 80s where we were all about profit and shareholder returns to actually looking at what that, you know, a much more balanced shareholder return means that we're actually building more sustainable practices. So there's changes happening both inside and outside an organisation. Most of the outcomes is actually um, part of the operation of the business. So corporate affairs are not... Um, you know, the the ESG managers, so to speak, but they are the ones that, that do help with the reporting and the strategy and the messaging that uh, then changes the view of that organisation or the value of the company, you know, um, from a stock perspective or an investment perspective. Vanessa, would you concur with that? Who owns or corporate affairs is driving at least the strategic part of it? And also your thoughts on brand purpose, which is a marketing term as opposed to, you know, a corporate affairs, public affairs term, right? But there's some sort of blurring of the lines in this, and uh, it would be good to sort of clear some stuff up. But firstly, concur with with Anna and then the brand purpose sort of uh, argument? The difference between an organisation that has succeeded or failed, uh, particularly in tumultuous times, is the quality of their communication. So all the strategy in the world around ESG can't be effective unless you can effectively engage uh, your stakeholders in it and your audiences in it. So I think in terms of who owns it, uh, the organisation needs to own it, but it requires communication leadership at every level of the organisation. And if that organisation cannot communicate or effectively engage or influence its stakeholders, it's going to be very difficult to be effective. So communication has to be at the table with the CEO and it has to be integral to every stage of um, those strategies to be able to bring them to life and to ensure that they're effective. And similarly with brand purpose, I mean, that needs to be set by, you know, the board and the executive about who are we, why do we exist? But in terms of bringing that brand purpose to life, unless it's able to be done creatively through marketing and through engagement with customers, but also through communication with all of our stakeholders and audiences in our relationships in everything we say and do, then it's very hard to get traction and to actually make, bring that to life. Billy, the marketers would argue that the brand purpose side of things is a, is a strategic imperative first before it's communication. So there's build the strategy out, what are we going to do? At Australian Pork, I want sort of a, a, a view from you on really who do you view as the as the owner, the custodian of, of environmental social governance, for instance? Who's owning that at Australian Pork and some of the other organisations that you're involved in? So, look, at Australian Pork, uh, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly a bit of a combined effort by the team in terms of ESG. Uh, you know, obviously we have our policy team that works very, very hard on on how we're doing these things. The communications team, to Vanessa's point, is is making sure that that's communicated really well to our stakeholders, uh, and 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 that includes government and our producers, um, and, and also you know a lot of our, our key people in our supply chain, and then marketing often are the ones bringing it to life. So you know, and 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 you know, and maybe maybe um, helping you know tell those stories in a in a really strong way. So it's a bit of a combined effort. You know, it's clearly owned by by one part of the organisation, but uh, the other parts of the organisation, as we've talked about, this little triumvirate in a way today between, I suppose, government and corporate affairs and policy on one hand, communications teams on the other, and marketing on the other. Uh, in our case, at Australian Pork, um, you know, everyone's working on that to bring it to life. Uh, Anna, can I ask you, is it is it an unnecessary nuance that I'm talking about, at least in terms of brand purpose versus ESG? Because marketing talks a lot about brand purpose. So is it fuzzy or is it just me making some stuff up? I, I would say it's neither of those. Um, I, don't, I don't think you're making it up, nor do I think it's fuzzy. I think that um, 
those that are, you know, again, I've talked a lot about younger generations that are joining organisations that organisations are trying to attract fundamentally need to connect to something. You know, their drivers are very different to um, what the drivers were of the past. And I think having a purpose, an organisation having a purpose and it being an authentic purpose is really, really important to that. To Vanessa's earlier point, the communications function help to deliver that purpose through, you know, consistently sharing what that actually means through the actions and words, you know, of the of the business. And I think um, last year, particularly during, you know, COVID lockdown, it really helped um, the, the, the organisations build uh, that sort of authentic connection to their people and to their customers um, really enabled purpose to kind of come at the forefront because, uh, you know, if, if our employees are really important, then we will enable them, we will provide them everything we possibly can to give them every chance to work as safely and as productively from home as we, as we can. You know, and so we've seen a lot of actions follow, um, you know, a lot of words. In many, com- in many corporations' case, we, ha- we haven't seen that. And so one would say that there is a disconnect between the organisation's purpose and their activities. But I think that in, in time to come, I mean, that's going to be a key differentiator. It, it already is, you know, and that's where, again, um, you know, reputation and trust for reputation and behaviour is all stitched together. So I think that, um, I, you know, the debate of who should own that, again, um, does marketing own brand or does, does corporate affairs? I mean, we have that discussion all the time. I think it's a share, shared ownership. Uh, you know, f- for it. And very quickly, Justin, you, you mentioned that sort of the internal stakeholders and, and talent management or talent attraction, having a business that people want to work for, right? And, and that's where a lot of this ESG and brand purpose stuff happens. Do you see a really distinctive difference in the expectations of people younger than me anyway, Anna, versus um, versus me? What, what is going on on that younger set? You know, um, it is making my job and others in my job uh, very, very, very difficult. And it's not because people's needs are demanding. It's because companies are well and truly behind the eight ball in relation to what expectations are. So our generation, interestingly enough, are demanding the same things but we'll be more flexible because we've all got ourselves into situations where we have um, significant overheads that we need to meet, um, we need to fund. Whereas, um, you know, those that are younger than us that are still living with their parents and have decided to set themselves up slightly differently so they don't get themselves into our situation are actually making choices. And I think this transaction or the, the transition that we're all going through at the moment from a what was to a what is going to be, particularly in relation to um, the work from home, you know, having much more kind of fluidity between uh, performance and hours and all of those sorts of things um, is coming to the forefront. We knew that this was going to happen, but I think COVID's brought it ahead 10 years and, uh, and I, ha- I have personally never found it so difficult to secure a good talent, but to, to secure, there's a, there is a mismatch between what somebody wants to give and what the organisation, um, how the organisation values that. 
Right. And are you seeing that, Billy? Because, you know, obviously not at Australian Port because you're cheering it, so it'll be really, really uh, put together. But in terms of the organisations that you're exposed to across the board, Anna talks about the expectations from talent and uh, the gap between uh, that and where companies are at. Do you see that in, in, in your travels as well? Look, I think there's a huge amount of research around that younger generation coming through and what their expectations are. They've got a much higher expectation, particularly around ESG and, and some of these areas of brand purpose and, and really just working for a company they really believe in. So we're, I'm certainly seeing this across the board and, uh, and I think boards are acknowledging that that's the case. We have a, a very large new generation of employees um, coming through and these are the things that they believe in and, and you can't ignore that. You really need to listen to it and, uh, and adjust um, and you know, I don't think these aren't, these aren't necessarily difficult things to do uh, other than for those that don't like change. Right, yeah. There, there could be some impacts on, on, on business as well, though, profits or pro- product or service or what you're doing. Maybe in the short term, but not in the long term. Right. Sorry, Anna. No, no, I was just going to say, I mean, the, what, what we're constantly hearing through the media is, this, is the demand for more sustainable practices, but we're also hearing disgruntled investors when their dividends are not being paid out at the same rate. And I think that this is an ownership by the whole of society. If we're going to run more sustainable businesses, which require more sustainable practices, then your dividends are not going to be the same as what they once were. And I'm not seeing that ownership. The the other piece to um, finish what Billy was saying was that large organisations are not set up this way. So the change, it's like the change that's happening in, you know, digital processes and the way to become, you know, for for companies to become more agile and more able to make quick decisions. By the time they get to that point, the demand changes. It's moved on. Absolutely. So this this is an ongoing chain of events that just needs to keep progressing. And I think now the accelerator is being put on. And what will happen is that companies that don't move will just miss out. That's, that, that's all there is to it, you know, and, and we're starting to see that. So it's a conversation I'd love to keep drilling onto, but we've got a couple of other things before we uh, have to wrap this up. And, and, and I think to both uh, Vanessa and Anna, both of you uh, talk about a really interesting, slightly provocative uh, viewpoint, I think, that um, corporate affairs may itself become too precious. It's a protected breed you talk about. W- what do you both mean by that? And, you know, maybe Vanessa first, is, is, that, is that something you, you, you think is, is real now? Um, I don't think it's precious or um, a protected breed, but I think that um, it is absolutely critical that the corporate affairs advocate for their role in organisations and also for organisations to maintain that balance between, you know, the, the short term market facing, um, which is very consuming and can be very immediate and the long term view. So, you know, we believe where corporate affairs plays its role and where it is most effective, where it is in that partnership and valued by the organisation um, and where the organisation itself does have a long-term view and a clear purpose. So maybe, Anna, where there's a lot of other functions in an organisation that are under pressure to have to change, uh, broaden, um, rethink and rewire themselves, uh, corporate affairs, no, yes? What's your view on that? That's a great question. So part of what the problem here is, is that the environment which actually changes the way that the corporate affairs function has actually grown in its um, ability to influence and impact has changed so dramatically 
that the onus is on those in the discipline to continue to upskill themselves and to change, to lean in, to continue to be relevant. So part of the problem, and I would agree with Vanessa, is not that they're too precious. It's that what they did yesterday is not what is needed today. Now, nine times out of 10, what a head of finance did yesterday is very similar to what they need to do today. Um, outside of some of the trends, obviously, that we're talking about, um, which are coming through. So a lot more of the role too that I'm seeing at the very senior level is becoming less about the technical capabilities, which once were obviously writing and the, and the basic forms of, of communication and much more about, um, you know, judgment, understanding the business, you know, being able to influence through having, you know, high EQ, being ahead of the game. And so having that sort of resourceful or resilient nature and, and being able to, you know, bring the outside in. These are things that we don't get taught. These are things that you have to develop as a leader. And so we as professionals, and, and I think this happens in every corporate discipline, you have to invest in yourself. You know, there were many, many years uh, where large corporations developed their people and put them through every single program in the world to continue developing. That doesn't happen anymore. Possibly to their own short-term detriment, a long-term detriment, actually. Absolutely, because that drives loyalty too, of course. But, mm. you know, we look at climate change, we look at the disruption of our relationship with China, we look at, and I'm just talking about in our own world right now, and the pandemic, three major issues that um, no one has had a solution for. But in most cases, the function, the communications function is looked upon to actually help navigate out of that through the way that they're going to actually communicate with their customers or how they're going to keep their employees up to date on, on what they're doing. Um, and, I, and there's no, there's no rule book. There's, no, there's nothing that's there that shows them how they can do that. And how many, you know, if you're going to if you're going to take a stab at a percentage uh, that are aware and are responding to that new world need and, and, and adapting, what would it be in the corporate affairs function? And how many, what percentage would you say are doing that? I know it's a big curly question. Probably forty percent are doing it. Yeah, right. That well, or have a sense of the importance of it, and therefore are trying to understand it. Right. Now, I don't blame it on the function. I think it's just what's happened. So the environment, the world that we're all living in has changed so much in the last 12 months alone. Coming up to speed with that whilst trying to influence and and help your organisation get its head around it at the same time is, is challenging. The, the other big observation in this part of the world is that we are very immature when it comes to our understanding of ESG. You know, you look at Europe and the Americas who have been doing a lot of this for years. And I, I remember when I first started operating in this space, you know, 20 odd years ago, not in-house, but in search. And so, you know, corporate social responsibility was just coming out as a nice to have. And at that time, it was it depended on the budget cycle. So the minute costs were getting tight, they were the first roles to go. Now, if you look at mature multinationals that are headquartered in the UK, in the Europe, or in the US, they have been long-term embedded parts of their business. So the operation that follows through is a lot more sophisticated. We, we just simply don't have the knowledge here. We haven't had the development here. And there's almost been this change that's happened overnight with a growing expectation for leaders here now to just understand it. But at the same time, Australia, as we all know too well, has been pretty much shut off from the rest of the world. And we're not great at embracing and learning from others outside of our own country, you know, Australians in general, that is. 
And so, I, I mean, I see that as one of our greatest issues, you know, and I'm very fearful of what's going on right now with the borders because we need to learn from other parts of the world that are so much more sophisticated in these areas that are going to really matter to our children and our children's children. Interesting. And, and Billy, there's interesting parallels here between what Anna and Vanessa are talking about uh, with corporate affairs and the change that's required, uh, the mindset and the capability changes required to the CMO, for instance. And the CMO has got similar pressures in that, you know, they used to be about the campaign and the branding. Now they've got to be across e-com, data, analytics, uh customer experience, all of that. Do you see parallels here with the, sort of the pressure that's on the function to broaden and deepen at the same time? I've, I've often said that, funnily enough, the fundamentals of marketing haven't necessarily changed over the last 30 years, but how we execute them have changed astronomically because there are so many executional options at the at the fingertips of our CMOs and their teams nowadays. So, yeah, you're right. It, it's, a, it's a much more complex environment. They have to work their way through. Um, there's a lot more testing and learning that has to be done in marketing nowadays because of all those options. Uh, but, uh, but I think, you know, those that are sticking true, we talked a lot at the start of this about brand trust, and that is a fundamental, you know, key to to what, we, what brands should always have been doing and what companies should have been doing. So I think that there's this play on getting the fundamentals right, but there's also the executional side, which is so important that is so different and, con- and continu- continually changing as well. To all of you, we're seeing lots of demand for certain types of job functions coming out of COVID and still in COVID in, in many cases. In terms of what you're seeing in a corporate affairs context, where's the biggest demand right now, Anna, for talent and what will it be in a year's time? Undoubtedly, in, in my view, it's very much for leaders who can actually flex, be resilient, take on and help organisations plan for the future. The other big area is um, employee communications. So an area that used to be the poor cousin that no one was interested in because it was the unsexy part of um, communications. And now all of a sudden the value uh, that has been placed on engaging our internal audiences to be our greatest advocates um, is incredibly important and it's quite a sophisticated, um, nuanced area of the function. And again, we, we don't have as much capability in this part of the world. Really, really interesting. Um, and so to wrap this up, the final question to you all is the biggest watchouts from each of you for the next year, starting with you, Anna, the biggest watchout that the, in, the, in the territory we've been covering. So I think the opportunity, I think the opportunity is there for anyone and everyone who's willing to work hard and jump, have some courage to jump into what they might not know, but by actually helping others to better understand it. Billy. Biggest watch out's about balance. It's about having the right voices around the table. You know, it's around making sure that marketing has a has a, a voice at the table. It's making sure that the corporate affairs um, team have got one and the communications team have got one. I think it's 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 often not one or the other here. It's about how we find the right balance uh, around the table. Great point. Um, uh, and Vanessa? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I can speak on behalf of Contract. So Contract is a digital platform that connects more than 5,000 specialist marketing and communication experts with part-time um, and contract work um, as well as full-time roles. I think what's critical about that is we are fronting the dynamics in the market. So we did see a lot of activity and a lot of change last year um, among the hundreds of jobs that we've had on the platform, but also the, the 5,000 specialists 
that, that work with us um, on that demand. There's demand in two areas, one in growth, so digital marketing, uh, content creation, social media um, and product launches. So a lot of demand in that marketing space and for anything that can deliver sort of digital marketing, um, particularly in consumer spaces as well as the B2B and in government. Um, and then I think coming to the communication side, we've just seen huge demand in any skills that build relationships. So media relationships, stakeholder relationships, uh, government relationships, regulation, employees. So that demand has been um, unprecedented over the last 12 months. And, and what's important about that and important about our industry is there has been a big transition from generalists, um, communicators that communicate with everyone to specialists. And we are really seeing that demand that um, employers are looking for deep specialists that really understand those disciplines and can join as part of a multifunctional team to be able to build that reputation, but also integrate with marketing to ensure that we're growing those market shares. Anna Whitlam, Billy Baxter, Vanessa Lyle, thanks. This debate, I think, has only just started. We've only scratched the surface. Um, it's a fast track, but we'll be back uh, to, to, to dig deep. So thanks for joining. Thanks so much. Thank you. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.